Father God, thank you so much for our opportunity once again to gather together. Uh, as we prayed last week, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And I pray that as we journey back into time to try to do our best to discover who were these early Christians, what was it that they revolutionized, I pray that we can grab hold of those lessons, those transformations, and change the world yet again, even here today, in our lives, in our place. So we gather, Heavenly Father, not just out of religious devotion. Um, We do that. We gather because we love you, because we're so grateful. But we also gather because we really want to learn how to be better followers of Jesus in this world, how we can continue to move and advance what you call your kingdom, your rule and your reign here on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray this in your name. And anybody that agreed with that prayer together said, Amen. We are in the middle of a series, our second installment on the book of 1 John. Last week we talked about how this really isn't a book. We are reading somebody's mail or we are listening into somebody else's sermon, which means that there's a context, there's a congregation, there's a group of people to whom this person, whoever is authoring 1 John, writing to and saying, hey, all the things that you're dealing with, let me help you uh, address some of those issues and try to take care of some of the challenges that you're facing. And one of those challenges was people saying that Jesus really wasn't in the body. He wasn't really fleshly. Flesh is bad. Spirit is good. Body is bad. Soul and spirit are good. And the first portion that we talked about last week was the argument that this author was making that no... Flesh actually is redeemable. Flesh is what Jesus came in the body for. And even though we may think that higher abstract spiritual concepts are most important, what this author is saying, no, Jesus in the flesh, God in a bod is actually what's most important. So that we can feel, we can touch, we can taste, we can hear, we can smell. Um, For those of you who've ever walked through Israel with us, you know that we talk about that Jesus probably smelled really bad because of all the hiking and walking that is needed. So today what we're going to do is continue our series. We are now in verse 5, and I'm going to share the next installment, which I'm simply calling another Greek word, koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. It's 1 John chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along, of course, and underline and highlight however you like to do. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We'll end our reading there. Last week was Sarks. This week, Sarks was flesh. This week, koinonia is going to translate into the word community or fellowship. Now, there are some huge themes in this passage I was struggling, actually, with how to narrow uh, this particular talk down into one particular thing. There are themes about light and God being light. Uh, I wanted to go into photons and waves and particles and all the physics of light and try to, 
you know, extrapolate all the beautiful spiritual mysteries of the deep quantum physics of our universe. But we didn't go in that direction. There's concepts of truth and what is truth and falseness and deceit. So there's all sorts of really huge, beautiful things that are woven into this passage. So I'm going to encourage you, as I've done before, go back and read it again and meditate and think about how are these things connected? Light, truth, God, fellowship, community. How are they actually connected? Sometimes we have this idea of saying this, seeing this verse and it says God is light. And therefore, that is the thing that it is attempting to communicate to us. God is light. And then we go and argue about how God is light. But what we are attempting to do is try to see what is the fullness of the argument that the author is attempting to make. When he says, and we're presuming it's a he, but when the author says God is light, what is following up from that? And what is the author attempting to move us towards upon the principle that God is light. So what we're going to do is focus in on light and fellowship actually being very similar together. In other words, without light, there is no fellowship. There is no connection. There is no community. And the word that is going to be used there is the word koinonia. Everybody say that word one more time. Koinonia. Get it on your lips. Last week we did sarks. This week we did koinonia. Koinonia is actually a word that many of you might already know. Virtually every camp conference that I've ever been to over many, many years has been called koinonia because it comes from this word for community or fellowship. Some people like to translate it friendship. It's about connecting with other people. It is about us as a group. It's not about isolation. The word koinonia in the Greek actually is two words that are smushed together, and the two words are common, which is koine or kune, and nia, which probably comes from the word for mind. So the word koinonia, or fellowship, or community, means that we actually have a common mind. We are thinking together. The way in which we view the world, how we understand reality, is common amongst other people. And if you and I have a similar view, a similar understanding, a similar truth, a similar outlook then we actually have fellowship and connection together. And this is actually a pretty profound truth that, if we think about our current context, is really, really critical for why many of us are experiencing so much division and polarization today. Fascinatingly enough, I kind of wanted to just end on this next point. The ancient Greeks talked about koinonia as being a virtue, having a common mind, in contradiction or contradistinction to this other word called idios, which means individual. So if you are an idios, you are somebody who does not share a common mind with somebody else. You do not share their same truth, their same worldview, their same outlook. In fact, the only thing you share as an idios is your own way of seeing the world, your own truth, your own understanding. There's something really profound about that. And even our common word, idiot, which comes from this word, we have a tendency to you know, use that in a very deprecating way towards people that we think are of lower intelligence. If you think about it in this particular way, it makes a lot of sense. Somebody who only thinks and understands truth and their outlook and their worldview based upon their individualness, not on a shared common understanding of what this world is. Some of you who are a little bit geeky and greeky might understand and re remember that if you've taken any elementary beginning courses in the New Testament, 
Scholars will tell you that the New Testament, the Bible that we have from Matthew all the way through Revelation, is actually written in a style of Greek that is called Koine or Cune Greek. It is a common Greek. It's very different from what other people might call classical or educated Greek. And the whole point of telling you that is not to get geeky, but to say these texts were written in language that was common to one another. Uh, Some translate the word koine actually as vulgar. It's the idea that they're using very earthly language. And uh, I won't do it in this particular message, but there are actually some passages in the New Testament that use what we would call curse words. And it's that earthy, it's that vulgar, it's that common. Uh, For those of you who want to speak biblically about things and you use the New King James Version or the Old King James Version, and it doesn't really resonate sometimes, it sounds very lofty, there's a reason why it doesn't resonate and sounds very lofty. It's not how we commonly speak with one another. And so when we get back into the New Testament, we understand, oh, this text was originally written to people who spoke just like the common person who used earthy language, who maybe used idioms and metaphors and similes very much like everybody did. It was meant for the common people. Perhaps one of the most important uses of this word koinonia comes in the book of Acts. For those of you who remember, there's this story of the movement of Jesus exploding, gaining new ground, And there was something radical that transformed in this community at the very beginning, specifically in Acts chapter 2. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This word koinonia or kune comes together. It's like what was happening in this early movement was that there was commonality and there was sharing. And when you read carefully what was happening, they were doing things like sharing in the apostles' teaching, which is basically what you're doing now. We're all sharing together in a common experience. They were worshiping together. We just did that with the kids sharing in a common experience. And then they had common possessions. They sold things and gave them to those who had need so that everyone had a common understanding of their needs being met. This is what was radical about this first century movement. It was really kind of tremendous. 1 John, the author of 1 John, is going to capitalize on that idea of commonality and move into this next place, which is God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we understand that God is light and he shines light into this community, then we all together will have that same fellowship, that same commonality. So there's big, huge themes that come out of this very short passage. Number one, There is a huge bond between truth and righteousness. If you want to be right, if you want to have a community, then you've got to shine light and you've got to be true. You've got to all see the world in the same way. You can't just be all idios all over the place, thinking only on your own terms. No, we share something common. And commonality is what brings us together in fellowship. There is also the absence of deceit and lying. We don't deceive one another. That's the contrast between light and darkness. We are not going to be deceived. We are not going to turn our back on the truth. And if I could sum it up in just one quick and easy phrase, this first John passage is summarizing a fundamental reality about human relationships. Where there is no truth, there is no fellowship. And if we don't share that common truth, then we don't have fellowship. We don't have a relationship. We don't have community. We do not have koinonia. 
Now, there's a couple ways in which this works itself out. Our church has been involved in having some very wonderful and engaging conversations around race, mass incarceration. We started with a book by Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. And some of you, some of us, have engaged in conversations with friends or colleagues or other people that have questions about whether or not anything that this person writes is actually even true. I mean, is it really true? And something happens in that moment when somebody on the other end does not recognize that that is true. There is a break of a relationship. There's a break of fellowship. Oh, you don't accept that there's horrible injustice and, and in this criminal justice system that we have, that there's racism that is pervading our system. You don't actually see that. You don't believe that that is true. You think something different. You and I don't have a common mind on this. And as a result of us not having a common mind on this, then there's something broken about that relationship. In order for us to even have a conversation or have a relationship that's going to be redemptive in this way, we actually have to start with a common mind about it. Does this make sense? This is tremendously profound in my mind. We have been engaged on conversations around sexual orientation and sexual identity for many years now. It's been a beautiful journey. But yet there are still people in your spheres of influence, in your circles, that completely reject that people who are LGBT uh, don't choose to be that way, right? Or are not born that way, or whatever their language is. And if you don't accept the truth or the reality of people that are telling you their life experiences, what ultimately happens? There's a break of relationship. Oh, you don't actually accept the light, the truth that we are attempting to communicate. If, you, if, the, if we don't have commonality in that, then how are we, how are we ever going to move forward and, and how to be a community together? There's no love. There's no relationship. There's no communality here if we don't accept a common truth and a common understanding. Some people are still very much driven by a gender binary. And if you believe in a gender binary, meaning there's only, in our humanity, only man and only woman, it's going to be really hard sometimes to have a conversation when there's a world that's full of gender fluidity. We have to have some common understanding of the truth before we can even begin to have fellowship. Does this make sense? Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for one or the other. That's for a different conversation. What I'm advocating for is what First John is suggesting to us is that community, relationship, has to be grounded upon a common truth. And so much of our discussion sometimes is based upon, well, I just don't believe it, and I don't believe that, and how could that be? It's the same thing for those of you who have been involved in missions work. If you've gone off into other countries and done some wonderful building houses, I've been a part of that but you start to read books like When Helping Hurts or Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton, and you start to realize, is the work that we're doing actually being helpful? And first step to that, do I actually want to know the truth of that? And if you want to have a relationship with people with whom you serve, if you want to have a relationship, if you want to have a community with people with whom you love and you care about, you have to start with the truth. Is my activity, is my action in this service going across borders, building houses or serving the poor, is it actually being helpful? What is it doing to that other person's humanity and dignity? What is that? And we have to start with that truth. Religious violence is another example. How many people experience uh, the conflicts about what particular religions teach and the violence that occurs from that? 
and people like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs have written extensively on what really is the truth about religious violence. Where does it come from? In summary, religion does not give rise to violence. Violence gives rise to religion. In other words, religion exemplified itself in our humanity because we were trying to figure out why and how we were killing each other so much. And so a religious institution, do we really want to know that truth? And of course, the Bible. This could go on forever in all the conversations many of you had. And what somebody says and what they believe actually about this particular text will determine in some ways, do we have a common shared understanding of what this is? Part of the reason why many of you are at Spark is because we are doing our best. I, we are far from perfect, and we've got a long way to go, and we've got a lot of work to go, and still more questions to ask, and still more changes to make. But part of the reason why many of you have told us that you're here is because we actually try hard to engage with what ultimately is the truth about this text. Who's the author? When was it written? Why, what was the context? Give me the history. Tell me. I want to know what did it mean to the early followers and the early believers. And if we have that shared understanding of that truth, then we can have fellowship and community and begin to move forward. Oh my goodness, There's, this applies everywhere. If you're talking about immigration and somebody says something that is blatantly untrue, there's no relationship, there's no moving forward. Same thing with healthcare. Um, I've had conversations with people about climate change, a very significant environmental issue, and yet there is not a shared truth and shared commonality, and it's hard sometimes to have conversations if we actually don't share and understand the same worldview the same way. Does this make sense? There is no fellowship, there is no community, there is no communality if we don't have a shared truth. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we're not sharing the same understanding, the same view of things, then we are in the darkness. In other words, no truth, no fellowship. Is that okay? So far, I see a couple nodding heads. Because if that is true, if that's a fundamental premise of our relationships and how they work, then so is this one, which is the flip side of what this author is doing. Because if we can then convince ourselves, persuade ourselves, move ourselves towards embracing the truth, well, then we can have significant fellowship. We can have significant community. We can have a connection with one another that is second almost to none once we understand that. There's a, perhaps a lot of different ways to go about what ultimately is this author attempting to shoot for. And what I'd like to do is share with you just simply one interpretation of what this passage may mean. You might have others. This is Spark. Welcome to Spark. You share with us what your others are. Here's just my way of thinking about it for today. Back in 1947, a group of Bedouin, which are desert nomad people, shepherds, were shepherding their flock. And you do so by throwing rocks. The rocks land on the ground and the flock moves. And somewhere in this mountain range on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea in Israel, called, at a place called Qumran, the shepherd threw the rock and went inside a cave, and it made a cracking sound. And inside of this cave, the Bedouin found a bunch of clay jars that looked a little bit like this. And thus, in 1947, we discovered what many would call the greatest archaeological find in the 20th century we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a bunch of writings 
from a group of people that lived in that northern portion of the Dead Sea. And they had a community there, and they were trying to live out the ways of God. They were part of the Jewish movement. Uh, They were a sect of Judaism. Josephus, an ancient historian, writes about them. Um, But they had a whole bunch of writings. And when you find writings that date back to almost the second century BC, I mean, we are talking now almost 2,300 years ago. This is a huge discovery. You get insights into the way people thought, into the way people structured their religion and their community in pretty significant ways. Well, you could spend your lifetime, and many do, studying the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're really fascinating. If you want to do that and be a scholar, you could also go to Google. They're all online by Google. Um, I would like to point out two passages from this community that use language really similar to 1 John. And I'd like to point out the distinction and the contrast between the two to make my point for this evening. The first is called the War of the Sons of Light against the Sons of Darkness. And can you already feel and sense Sons of Light versus Sons of Darkness? You're already using the same language for how you organize a community. And here's what the opening lines of this text say. For the instructor of the rule of... By the way, anytime you see brackets like that, it's just an indicator that the scholars are guessing that's what it says. There might be a, a little tear or something like that in the parchment, in the, in the scroll that they found. For the instructor, the rule, of, uh, the rule of the war, the first attack of the sons of light shall be undertaken against the forces of the sons of darkness, the army of Belial, which is another word for like the devil. The troops of Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, the Amalekites. I mean, get ready for battle. I mean, it's already starting pretty aggressively here. Philistia and the troops of the Katim of Ashur. Supporting them, and here's the key phrase, are those who have violated the covenant. That phrase is a phrase to indicate a group of people that were Jewish, that were followers of Yahweh, that were a part of that movement, but they had violated the terms of the covenant. In other words, they... We're not doing what God apparently said or what this community thought they should be doing. They had violated the covenant. They had said, we are outside of this community. So that's first clue. Sons of Light is a group of people that follow the rule of the community. They are the ones who are in with the covenant. The sons of Darkness are the people that have violated the covenant. People that obey, people that disobey. And it gets even more powerful when you realize they had a manual that dictated how the community is supposed to work out, how we are supposed to live. And this next passage is fairly lengthy, but you need to get it to understand a little bit of what's going on in this, in this community. The master shall teach the saints to live according to the book of the community rule, that they may seek God with a whole heart and soul and do what is good and right before him, as he commanded by the hand of Moses and all his servants, the prophets, that they may love all that he has chosen and hate all that he has rejected, that they may abstain from all evil and hold fast to all good, that they may practice truth and righteousness and justice upon earth and no longer stubbornly follow a sinful heart and lustful eyes committing all manner of evil. Does this sound like a... like? some sort of agreement that you had to make for a church that you had to join. Perhaps you were at a school, specifically a religious school, and you had to sign a paper that you are not going to do these things. He shall admit into the covenant of grace all those who have freely devoted themselves to the observance of God's precepts, that they may be joined to the counsel of God and may live perfectly before him. How high of a standard is this? In accordance with all that has been revealed concerning their appointed times and that they may love all the sons of light. There's that phrase again, light. People who obey perfectly. 
each according to his lot and God's, dark, and God's design, and hate all the sons of darkness, people who do not obey perfectly, each according to his guilt and God's vengeance. All those who freely devote themselves to his truth shall bring all their knowledge, powers, and possessions into the community of God, that they may purify their knowledge in the truth of God's precepts and order their powers according to his ways of perfection. This is a really high bar, friends. And all their possessions, according to his righteous counsel, they shall not depart from any command of God concerning their times. They shall be neither early nor late for any of their appointed times, which is for all of you that showed up here after 4.45 p.m. tonight. They shall stray neither to the right nor to the left of any of his true precepts. Now, I want you to just, this document is fairly lengthy. This is how it starts out. Sons of light, those who perfectly obey, who are in alignment, who do exactly what the community demands and requires. Sons of darkness, those who violate all of that. This theme, this separation of groups of people was so strong in the community that if you go to Israel today, for those of you who've been there, you remember this. If you go to Israel today and you go visit the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have actually constructed architecturally that particular design. The scrolls are right there underneath that building that looks like the top of the jar. And then over on the far side, it's hard to see on this screen, but over on the far side, they have built a wall that is completely dark. To make the distinction that this community was all about sons of light and sons of darkness. People that are perfect, adhering to the community rule, do not sway to it from the left or the right, and people who do. Do you get the feel? Like, would you want to join this community? Or what would it feel like to join this community? What kind of bar is this? And then you have this text. If we confess our Sins. Now, for those of you who've been with us, you know that the word sin is a word that means we have fallen short. We have not reached the mark. We have not, we have not hit the target that we were supposed to. He who is faithful and just will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The confession and the recognition that we actually have not attained perfection is what it means to live in the light. Light and darkness in this passage is not a group of people that have it right and a group of people that have it wrong. Light and darkness in this community, in this movement, is about people who recognize I don't have it all together and people who don't recognize that they don't have it all together. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. That is what is darkness. This, listen, this is beautiful. Religious communities, specifically those who are attempting to do the right thing, to be pure, have this tendency to elevate the standards, to elevate all of the requirements, to elevate all of the things that you're supposed to do. And if you fall short of that, then you are on the outside. You're the darkness. You have violated the covenant. This is a community that says you belong here if you recognize that you've fallen short because... Everybody here has fallen short. If we confess our sins, if we confess, I've messed up. I haven't done it. I'm, we're striving. We're doing our best. But you know, I've failed. I've miscommunicated. I've hurt somebody. Uh, I've violated a commandment. Congratulations. You are now in the light. Because all of us have. And that means, and, and if we share that entire truth together, 
that you're messed up and I'm messed up and we are all together messed up and fallen short, now we have community and fellowship. Yes? This is what, oh, this is so beautiful. I consider this contrast and comparison between what that Qumran community from the Dead Sea Scrolls and what this first century way of Jesus movement to pretty much encapsulate two different visions for how to build a community. There are two different ways of how to build a beautiful community. The first is that we all conform. Here's the standard, and you make sure that you are lockstep into all of that in order for us to then be the community. But what the first John community, what this first beginning movement of Jesus was, no, that's not how we build community. We build community by all of us confessing. Yeah, oh man, I have messed up. I haven't seen it right. I've fallen short. I've hurt my friend. I've violated a commandment. I, I, I really did not follow through in the way that I should have. There's a, one way of building community. We are all together in this community because we've got it. We're, we've done it. We all adhere to the same thing. We are all essentially perfect. Oh, actually, the reason why we're friends is because I totally know how you jacked up and you totally know how I jacked up. And we share that together. That's what it means to join this light in this community. There's one way. Obey the community rule or to love the community. Here's the standard. This is what it means to be a community. Or, hey, friend. Love you. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, totally no. Oh, yeah, got the details. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. This, to me, is the two different contrasting ways, very much like light and darkness, that how we build community. Koinonia, what is it that we share in common? What is it that we have a similar way of viewing the world? What is it that we all understand about reality? We've all fallen short. And therefore, there's no perfect people out here. Perfect people are not allowed in this community. It is the community that says, I have missed it. And I still need and want to be connected. And the best way to do that is to be connected and commune with people who also have missed it. For those of you who've been around Spark, you know what we are core values driven. We're not belief driven. This is part of the reason why. We don't have a statement of faith in that particular sense. We have these core values. And one of those core values is reconciliation. It's the idea that when there's broken relationships, the value for us is to do what we can to restore those relationships, whether that's relationships between people, relationships between people and God, or relationships between people and the earth and the world around us. That's what we're striving to do. There's lots of different ways to do that. It's a core value of ours. Based upon this first John passage, here's what I see being fleshed out in this value. When we see sin in this community, in the way of Jesus, we don't just look down upon that person, try to fix them, try to figure out what went wrong, you know, establish a new accountability system so you don't ever do that again. When in this community, it's like, oh, confess. Let me tell you about how I've done that too. And now we share something and we can grow together in that. You've heard 
us perhaps say that you belong before you believe in this place? This is very much along those lines. I want to push it even further. This is a test run. I haven't run this by any of the pastors. This is a test run. You don't belong before you believe. You belong no matter what you believe. Because all of our beliefs at some particular point are going to perhaps fall short. And this, to me, is the most important piece of this entire thing. If that is true, therefore, our entire community, this movement of Jesus, is built on grace. We extend so much grace to one another. And it's so frustrating sometimes to know that this movement of Jesus has been built upon this grace, that we have all fallen short. I mean, this is clear throughout the passages. And yet we are so quick to withhold grace from other people who have fallen short. But this passage and others like it remind us that this entire community is built on mutual grace. We extend grace to one another. I'm going to leave uh, the last words to two people. First is a gentleman by the name of Brendan Manning, and the second is a person by the name of Jesus. Brendan Manning wrote this beautiful book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Very similar themes. And I just like this quote. When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. Again, light and darkness is not one group of people versus another group of people, right? Light and darkness happens here, whether you acknowledge and accept or don't acknowledge and accept. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I am a rational animal. I say, I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. (laughs) And simply the confession of that warms your heart to somebody. The last word goes to Jesus. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, the religious leaders saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because they had to ask the disciples because they were too embarrassed to ask Jesus. But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn. And I love this. Go and learn. He doesn't tell you exactly what this means. He says, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, not the righteous, but the sinners. This is a movement of sinners in the sense that all of us have fallen short. All of us have missed the mark. All of us have not attained to the very thing that we think should be the ultimate aim of our humanity, of our purpose. We've all... How many of you have ever just messed up at your job? How many of you have just screwed up with your relationships? How many of you have yelled at your kids? How many of you have cut that person off? How many of you really coded something really bad? How many of you, right, you just go on and on and on. Light in this community is about confessing, oh yeah, we all do that. And once we share that together, now we have fellowship. And the last portion of that passage is, and it is through that confession that God begins to heal us, restore us, put us back together again, and create a beautiful community out of that confession. Does anybody have any questions? We haven't done Q&R in a while, and I figured I'd just throw in the slide just in case. I think in my mind there's a little bit of a paradox between you saying we need shared truth, but then ultimately the only shared truth we have is that we're all 
So Anne's comment is that you hear, I hear you saying that we all need to share truth, but ultimately the only shared truth is that we're all sinners at the foot of the cross. Did I say that right? right? Yeah. There's something really beautiful about that humility. There's something really beautiful about that sense of religious identity. My religion is not because I now stand on a platform where I've elevated because of my religious duties. My religion is because we all share this together. That's my religion, right? I actually think that there is a mystery that's present in the confession of sin that's not been touched on in the sermon, which is that as followers of Jesus, there is an expectation that our confession of sin, there's an invitation to go down to the water, to let it wash away symbolically but have that physical experience in those baptismal waters, that in Christ, those things are washed away. And the confession comes daily because we're always messing up daily. But it's also in the truth that, it, that there's an, a thousand and one second chances and new starts because of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There is a mystery and a paradox with this teaching that's not in the sermon, which is that there is a confession, but there is also this beautiful purity and cleansing that comes through baptism, that, that comes through God's work in our lives. And that is exactly correct. In, in verses 9 and 10, if we confess he is faithful and just to purify us, it's to cleanse us and to purify us. It's, sorry, it's to forgive us and to purify us. It's these two things. You've been forgiven, but then you've also been cleansed. So yes, there is this mystery and this paradox of the accepting that we've all sinned or we've all fallen short and that we are in this process of being cleansed and forgiven and that Jesus has done it and has completed it. Yes. 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 To whom do we confess? Is it a, is there like in some traditions, there's one person that you confess to and others you just do it privately by yourself because I think that the mystery occurs when we confess to another. The question is, to whom do we confess? Because there are possible multiple ways or multiple people in which we do that. And various traditions emphasize one way over the other. We need Pastor Mark here because he's Catholic and he has a wonderful tradition of confession in his faith background. So I would want to also defer to him and some of his tradition as well, um, as well as our other pastors who have that. My, my quick re- reply, which I hope encompasses all of their replies too, is that your question is a beautiful one. If we can ask that question and continue to ask that question, then how we have fallen short in different ways may determine the different ways in which we confess, right? So confession isn't linear or isn't a single entity, meaning, and I did throw up a confessional <laughs> image, right? Um, so that's not the only way that we see in, that, uh, in the scriptures. Um, there are multiple ways. So I would hopefully, again, encompass what other pastors at our church might say, that there are multiple ways in which confession can happen. And all of them being beautiful and wonderful, confessing to yourself, confessing to God, and confessing to one another. And I would just add, in the Bible, we also have not just individual confession, but community confession, where the whole community comes before God and says, we have all sinned. And there's something quite beautiful about that. And I think when we look into the world at large, it seems like there are a lot of people that say, no, all of those Christians, right, need to apologize for this. And they've held us all accountable for that, but we haven't come together yet and said we want to apologize for it. So there's a communal confession, too, that might exist beyond just an individual. 
Yeah, it's very beautiful. When we went through Leviticus, we talked a little bit about the individual sacrifices as well as the communal sacrifices for that. Um, thanks so much for a little Q&R. Um, we hope to do that a little bit more every now and then.